Turn with me now in your Bibles to Psalm 69. Our Old Testament reading comes again from David. I'll read the first 19 verses. Again, Psalm 69, verses 1 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire, where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters, where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying, my throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee to be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let... The deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, and hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul, and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach, and my shame, and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. David paints a bleak picture of the circumstances in which he finds himself. In many ways, we similarly find ourselves in predicaments like David's. Certainly, as we transition to Hebrews chapter 13, we will see that There's nothing new under the sun. So I would encourage you now to open your Bibles, flip over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 is our text for the day. It's the last chapter in the book. There are many people who who question the authorship of Hebrews. Your authorized version attributes it to the Apostle Paul. You might hear me slip into that language. There's no need to to come at the preacher if you disagree with me. But if I say the author of Hebrews and then I go into the Apostle Paul, no, that's where I I tend to hold to. But I know that there is some 
question as to the authorship. Irrespective of that, we will see what the Apostle Paul says with regards to how to handle the very sorts of things that hundreds of years earlier David had mentioned in Psalm 69 because similar things were happening to the Hebrew Christians to whom Paul wrote. So Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to read the entire chapter. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be ye content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience, in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we would ask that you would continue to bless the reading, the hearing, the preaching of your word for our good and for your glory. We ask that you would clear our minds of all distraction and help us to fix, fix our minds and our eyes and our thoughts on Jesus, in whose name we Paul has spent the last 12 chapters of his letter to the Hebrews. There I go. 
That didn't even take long. I just went right from the start. (laughs) Discussing the reality of their circumstances in light of the supremacy of Christ. The Hebrew Christians scattered throughout the known world and yet suffering the same sorts of persecution that all followers of God have suffered throughout all of history, irrespective of the era or the dispensation. It's never been an easy thing to walk in holiness. For any one of a number of reasons. Certainly the powers of the world, the principalities, are aligned against godliness because they're made up of the individuals, including us in our natural state, who are aligned against godliness. We in our natural condition would never pursue holiness. We would run far from it. And then what's worse claim that the wickedness we're pursuing is actually holiness. That's how clouded, that's how twisted, that's how distorted the natural mind actually is. They call evil good and good evil, and Isaiah proclaims some woes unto those people. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, would note at the end of chapter 1 that those people not only do wickedness, but they promote and encourage other people to do the same. So it's always been difficult to walk that narrow path. And indeed, we wouldn't do it on our own. But we aren't on our own. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul in chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians lays out that long list of people that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and such were some of you. You've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified, you've been set apart by God through Christ. You are no longer the way you once were, identified and identifiable by your sins and your iniquities and your transgressions. Rather, you are identified as blood-bought lambs of the Lord Jesus. You're not those people that aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Because of God's work through Christ in your life, he tells the Corinthians, and therefore us. Because of what God did for you, you will inherit eternal life. As I said earlier in our pastoral prayer, salvation is of the Lord. That's Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. We bring nothing to the table. I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said, Nothing to the table with regards to our salvation except the sin that made Christ's sacrifice necessary. So the same salve, the same balm for our soul is the same salve and balm for the souls of the Old Testament saints, of the earlier church in the New Testament era. And then once we're called home to glory and the next generation of Christians until Christ comes again, it's always been the same solution trusting in God's salvation that he provides freely. Our Old Testament brothers and sisters that we heard so much from in in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and all of the godly Old Testament folks that we read about in our own reading, they were saved looking forward to the promised Messiah. Elsewhere in Hebrews we see that those people never saw the fruition of those promises. They never saw the one who was to come, but they trusted in the promise giver. 
who said, here is what I have done. I've brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Here is what I would have you do as my people, how I would have you live. And we see the Decalogue and we see the Old Testament types and shadows that were pointing to the one who was to come. And our godly Hebrew brothers and sisters in the Old Testament era said, I'm going to trust in you, Jehovah. You said this one was coming. I'm going to trust that he's coming. This is how you would have me live. This is what you've done for me. This is what you're going to do for me. I'm going to live, how does the author of Hebrews say it in 11? By faith. But no doubt it was a challenge. We saw in the Old Testament that cycle that's repeated in Judges of sin and consequence and crying out in repentance and God sending a judge and restoring And that cycle playing out in the nation state of Israel is the cycle that plays out in the nation state of our hearts as individual Christians. We stumble into sin. We deal with the consequence. We cry out for a deliverer and God reminds us that Christ has paid the penalty for those sins. That's the only difference between the cycle in Judges and the cycle that we have in our lives now is Christ has already come. What they were looking forward to, we are looking back on in our lives, but it's the same event the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. The Old Testament talks about him coming. The Gospels talk about him on the scene, and the New Testament comes about, talks about what he's done, where he is, and the fact that he's coming again. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God's salvation, and it's all about living by faith. But our Hebrew brothers and sisters in this letter are struggling. They're under persecution. Again, because it's we've never been seen period with Constantine, and we can talk about that another time. But generally speaking, for the godly, we have always lived in enmity with the world because those are the two religions, godliness and worldliness. It's the only two religions the Bible discusses. True religion from God, false religion in all its forms and flavors. The Old Te- or the New Testament speaks continually about not loving the world and the things of the world, about seeking first the kingdom of God, about not storing up for ourselves treasures on earth where moths destroy and thieves break in and steal. And if y'all saw me arch my eyebrow, it's because in family worship I once reversed those and it made little sense. And that's the running joke. So I had to be careful about that. But the bottom line is we are called to shun worldliness and run to the salvation that God has provided. But it's hard. Maybe maybe our family members don't understand. Maybe our employers don't know why we won't work on a particular day. Maybe that tension is there. Maybe that that temptation is there. It's a real thing. Ah, it's a day. It's just one time. Or it's just for a season of time. Turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. This particular portion I'm going to read is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. It is the subject of a great little book by Thomas Watson. It's called The Great Gain of Godliness. You can find 
it, uh, the Banner of Truth Trust publishes it, maybe seven or eight dollars. You can probably find it free on the internet. It is the book, one of the books that Charles Spurgeon lamented not being able to, to find a copy of for his library. And he had, I think, upwards of 12,000 uh, volumes in his library. And he complained that, uh, that he couldn't find that. He knew it existed, couldn't put his hands on it. Malachi at verses 16 through 18. And remember, these Old Testament verses matter. Our Hebrew Christians, our brothers and sisters that were the subject of the letter to the Hebrews would have understood these. Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Malachi, the prophet, is telling us two religions, service to God, service to not God in this case. that speak to one another, that fear the Lord, that walk in holiness, who do their best by God's providence and the grace that's given to them to obey commandments, which Jesus said was a mark of, of the one who loved him. If you love me, keep my commandments, he says. But that temptation is there to work on that school schoolwork on the Lord's day. The temptation is there to delay obedience to our mothers and our fathers. Still get around to doing it, but we'll do it on our terms and not mom and dad's terms. To get an early start on the work week. Getting that project done a little earlier so we can hit the ground running on Monday morning. The challenge is real. And while it might not be persecution to the point of death, that temptation, that struggle, that worldliness weighs on us and pushes on us and pushes and pushes and pushes until we do one of two things. We remain firm and resolute in the Lord or we give in. And the world and her system, one of the beasts in Revelation that gets power from the dragon, that social and political system, would like nothing more to see God's people acquiesce, to give in. And it's that much more important. Straight back to the book. We read Malachi tells God's people. They that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. So when we struggle, we need to remember that as we persevere in Christ, as the Holy Ghost causes us to persevere, it's really how it works out. And we lean on one another, and we bear one another's burdens, and we pray often, and we meet together, and we gather for corporate worship, irrespective of what the world's civil magistrate may say. God hears, and he remembers. And for those of us who may not have been heard or thought of once or twice, it doesn't matter. 
we realize that the God of the universe cares what we do. And he's put us in a family of people that love him. And he even says they shall be mine. If you've never been anyone's, if you've been rejected by people, if you're struggling to, if you're doubting your worth or your value in the Lord, and certainly with our society that has just cast aside so many people, irrespective of age, gender, class, race, whatever metric you want to use, the world system will use you up and spit you out, but not so with the Lord. They shall be mine. This is Malachi 3.17. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. We talk about sons and daughters of the Most High God, and a lot of times we go to John's epistles towards the end of the New Testament. Talked about it in the Old Testament as well. We are the Lord's. And we should be different because verse 18 reminds us, Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him, him that serveth him not. So there's going to be a difference. Watson would say in that little book that in periods of rampant wickedness, it is that much more important for the Lord's people to be zealous for the things of him. So when the world system ratchets up its persecution, we become more zealous for holiness. As the world would drive us to our knees in submission to it, we are driven to our knees in prayer to God and more humble obedience and reliance on the word. And Paul spends some time in this letter to the Hebrews reminding them in whom they've placed their trust and how far superior he is to everything else that preceded from an earthly standpoint, because so many people would see those types and shadows of the Old Testament sacrificial system and say, well, those people are saved by doing those things. But not so. It's not so. And we know that. And Paul was writing to people that knew that. He talks about three different types of duty. Before I get to those three types, I want to refer you back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number three. Number one is what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy, enjoy him forever. The word of God is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the only rule God has given to direct us to glorify and enjoy him. And question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, pay attention to that word, and what duty, pay attention to that word, God requires of man. And pay close attention to the order in which the divines place those. What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Because what we have going on in the book of Hebrews is similarity to that catechism question. Paul spends most of the book talking about what man is to believe concerning Christ in the face of vicious and painful persecution, trials, afflictions. And then towards the end, and we're going to discuss that in chapter 13, he talks about what duty God requires of man in light of all of those things. He starts talking about the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is higher and far more superior than the, the angels, how the Sabbath rest in Christ is typified, is made perfect, 
and the Sabbath rest that we see on the Lord's days points to those that ultimate Sabbath rest. We talk about how the types and shadows, the sacrifices of blood and the, uh, the bulls and blood of bulls and goats, only pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Christ and His blood. And then chapter 12, this is a loose, fast race through the first 12 verses. Chapter 12, probably one of my favorite chapters, of talks about the, the difficulties and trials and discipline, the hardship that the Hebrews were, uh, Hebrew Christians were going through. He says, we've got all of these things. Look at how it begins. Just turn back. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. So he's reminding our brothers and sisters, that they weren't alone. When we're persecuted, when we have trials and afflictions, one of the consequences is often that we feel isolated. We feel cut off. One of the wicked things that's happened in recent years is people have been forced to feel isolated and cut off. And as churches have acquiesced to that, it's been to their shame and to the detriment of God's people because they have felt cut off and isolated. Paul reminds the Hebrew Christians, and we need to take that reminder as well. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. There are other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not alone. When we suffer, we feel like we're the only ones suffered and the only ones who have ever suffered. But that is not the case. And there's comfort to be had there. And I don't mean in the misery loves company. Because let's go to see what Paul has to say. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Paul is constantly saying our with regards to faith, linking his hearers to himself and to other brothers and sisters. We are not alone when we struggle. We have to believe not only in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, But we are not alone in our struggles. We are not alone in the the afflictions that befall us. The rest of chapter 12 is just fantastic. He says in verse 4, You've not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. We go through these things as Christians because God loves us, not because he's abandoned us. It's because he's making us fit for heaven. One of the, there are two elements to sanctification. There's the being set apart for a particular purpose. And then there's the being made holy. In our natural state, we are anything but holy. But in Christ, we are made holy initially and then progressively in our lives. How are we made holy initially? The blood of Christ sanctifies us, sets us apart. How are we made holy through the course of our lives? The Lord chastens us. He providentially ordains, I mean, he ordains everything that comes to pass. But he ordains difficulties and trials in the lives of his people to make them more like Jesus, to make them fit for heaven. Let's follow verse 12. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 11 and following. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth 
yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. He's saying, I know you've suffered. I know it hurts, but God is doing this for your good. All of the trials, all of the afflictions that we, we go through in this life ultimately will result in the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now contrast that with the world who says suffering is something to be gotten rid of, to be shunned, to be scorned. Our goal is to make our lives as comfortable as possible. Resist anything that could hurt you or harm you, and heaven forbid maybe put you at risk of dying. Even though at the same time it loves death, because God tells us in Proverbs, those who hate me love death, they fear it to an unhealthy degree. And so they run from those trials. They want to have as carefree a life as possible. Whether it's, you know, no matter what the ism or ology is that, of the false worldly system, or whether it's self-help stuff, or you see it a lot in the entrepreneurial circles, uh, this idea of having a, a, an easy life, of living with financial confidence. And there's nothing wrong with financial confidence in and of itself. It's a means to an end to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But if it's itself then we've gone off the reservation, so to speak, and we have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And we have fallen into that worldly system. So the worldly system says, no, run away from conflict. But the true religion says, lean into the conflict because it's for your good. And in light of the conflict, here's how you need to act. This is how Paul closes the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look in... Detail at, ver at chapter 13. There are duties that God requires of men. Paul has already laid out what to believe regarding the supremacy of Christ over the angels, uh, his Sabbath rest, uh, his supremacy over the types and shadows of the Old Testament system, how all of the difficulties that they're going through can tangle them up, but they need to fix their eyes on Jesus. He's the one who's the author of the faith. He's the one who finished it. So those are the things that people need to believe, and now there are duties in light of that belief. That's why it's important to remember that belief comes before duty in this. Because to reverse those, to make it duty and then belief, or to just eliminate belief and go straight to duty, creates a man-centered works-based righteousness that can never save, that will drive people to one of two places, pride or despair. Pride in how great I am and I avoid the bad people and bad things and I only hang out with the right sort of people and the right sort of people are normally people like you in that works-based framework. Or despair in that I'll never be good enough, I'll never do enough good works, <coughs> The good works I did, I'm not sure they're truly good. You hear Martin Luther talk about that before he stumbles upon Habakkuk. 
filtered, you know, cited in, in Romans 1. So it has to be belief and then duty. Faith without works is dead. James re- references it, but he links the two. We believe. We're converted. We repent and believe the gospel. And then the fruit of that is that we have duties that God requires of us. That's why the preface to the Ten Commandments is so important. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel or out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I've redeemed you. Here's how I would have you live. Jesus redeemed Paul's audience. He redeems us. Here's how he would have us live. Let brotherly love continue. We're called to love the brethren. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter that gets put on plates and posters and all that stuff. It's not just for marriage. It's for all of us. It's how we're supposed to treat one another. So let it continue, presuming, of course, that it continues on. Because that temptation in trials is to get snippy with people, is to get irritable, is to get frustrated. These are practical applications. Hebrews 13 13 is a practical application, how to live a Christian life in the face of of adversity. And if this was one of these ridiculous megachurches, that would be like a whole sermon series and there'd be like T-shirts that we'd print, you know, 10 ways to live a practical Christian life. But no, we're going through trials. We're going through struggles. They are, or they were, we are. This is just as practical for us as it was for them. In light of persecution and tribulation, we have to still love our brothers and our sisters. We have to. Because that default setting is if we love Jesus, we'll keep his commandments. We love God, we love our neighbor. Our neighbor's everybody. We can't let the world creep into our thinking to the point where, you know what, it's tough. I'm going to go ahead and yell at people. It doesn't work that way. It shouldn't work that way. All too frequently it does. Paul is reminding them, look, it's going to be, we're going to be entangled in sin. We're going to be struggling. But you need to let that brotherly love continue. It is one of the ways we show what's in our heart with regards to how we see the Lord and how we see his people. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. As we think of Abraham, we think of Lot entertaining angels. But ultimately, it's still being hospitable towards people around us. So we love our neighbors. We're open. We're hospitable towards them. These are simple, practical things that reveal what's in our heart. Back to what James was talking about, linking the, the faith and works together. That we reveal how we think by how we live. And Paul is saying, look, I know this is tough, but remember, because persecution and adversity tempt us to become disheartened, tempt us to be embittered, tempt us to doubt. We've got to look back. This is why realizing who Christ is in this book is so important. We need to go back and look to see just how supreme, just how much better Christ is than anything else the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of his work and his life and his death, his burial and resurrection and ascension. He says, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. 
and them which suffer adversity as being yourself also in the body. So don't just be nice to people. Take the active part in remembering. Think on those people. Don't just go, yeah, I wonder what happened to those guys. No. No doubt the Hebrew Christians that we hear or that would have heard this would have had friends, would have had fellow church mothers and fathers that would have been thrown in jail. Remember, it's an active thing. It's a command. Remember them. Don't leave them hanging on their own, isolated. Remember them like you were right there with them. That's why it's important that we pray for our brothers and sisters who are incarcerated. That's why it's important that we remind them Because in their affliction, it's easy, especially from a physical standpoint, to feel cut off and separated from everyone else. Many of us may have seen or heard of this story of the the old minister that goes to visit a, a, a parishioner, hadn't been in church for a few weeks, and they're just sitting in front of the fire. The minister takes the tongs and pulls a coal out and just sits it on the hearth. They just sit, the fire is roaring and crackling and popping, the coal is dying, getting colder, and eventually smolders and goes out. The minister looks over at the at the wayward church member, and he got the idea. He said, All right, preacher, I'll be in church next week. When we're isolated, when we're cut off from the heat of the body of Christ of God's word, of the ordinary means of grace, the fire can go out. That's why it's important that we connect with one another, irrespective of where we are or what we're doing. That's why it's important. That's why I love the idea of being able to, to come and minister in somewhere, uh, and, and preach somewhere else because I get to know what's going on in a particular congregation, and I can pray more specifically. And as that congregation may be struggling with something, I may have dealt with it and can say, hey, this could be helpful, or vice versa. But we're not going to know that if we cut ourselves off from the body. And if we don't reach out to people. And if we don't remember people when they happen to not be around us. We need to remember them to the point where they could be standing right next to us in our minds. Marriage is honorable in all. These are, these are the personal duties that we see in the beginning of the chapter. And undefiled. Now, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. We've got two different situations here. We've got a, two different, uh, the two different religions on, on play. Covenant faithfulness, the covenant of marriage. A covenant is agreement between two or more people. The covenant of marriage should remain intact. That covenant faithfulness that points to Christ and his bride should remain untacked. We shouldn't defile the marriage bed, so to speak, by mixing and being unfaithful and committing adultery, be it physical adultery, mental adultery that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, or spiritual adultery of Christ and something else. Because Paul tells them, look, whoremongers and adulterers, those people who are covenantly unfaithful, God is going to judge. And the temptation is real when we're struggling to somehow think, you know what, God's word's not sufficient. 
it's just not enough. I got to do something else. I got to add this, whether it's stoicism or pragmatism or utilitarianism or maybe mix in a little uh, Mary Baker Eddy and maybe some Jehovah's Witness stuff. But certainly not just the Bible. It can't be that. That's the temptation when we're struggling, when we're dealing with persecution. But our personal duty in light of who Christ is and how supreme he is, is to stay on the path and to live as befits a Christian. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Your conversation is your, your behavior. Let your life, basically, be without covetousness. Be content with such things as ye have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We saw it in the Old Testament. There's constant reminder. We see it in Deuteronomy as well. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have. And who do you have, Christian? What do you have? You have fellowship with the God of the universe through Christ. It doesn't matter what Joe down the road may have. If he's got the exact things or the exact life that you want, you have the Lord of the universe. And as our brother Ian Paisley said, it's better to have God and no one else than to have everyone else and not God. Be content with what you have. You have fellowship with the Lord who made you. You have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Who cares what car you drive? Who cares whether your whole shoes have holes in them? Who cares if your belt's a little bit too old? Or whatever the case may be. You have God on your side. And ultimately, our personal duties lead to this, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. When we recognize that we have eternal fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. We can practically do our duty when we believe in Christ's work for our salvation and not our own. Then our duty becomes a blessing. That it doesn't matter all those things that I'm struggling with. I have God on my side. What does it matter what man can do to me? So Paul is focused on calibrating the Hebrews thinking to some personal duties and he shifts his attention to some ecclesiastical duties. We have a, an odd sandwich here at in verse 7 and in verse 17. We're called to remember which, them which have the rule over you and then we're called to obey them that have the rule over you. These are the people who brought the gospel. Again, there's that active, those, there's that active indicative sense. Their commands: remember, obey. You are in Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. Here is your duty to remember and obey. Verses seven and eight. Them which have the rule over have spoken to you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of Christ as the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's why we talk about these evangelists, these ministers, maybe the disciples, Paul, and by extension, those people who inherit the keys of the kingdom, the elders of the church in our modern parlance. 
We're called to remember those people, obey them, to submit to them. Now, somebody's going to speak up. Well, what if they aren't doing the things they're supposed to do? We can talk about that. The beauty that is the divine right of Presbyterian form of government that we see from the scriptures, we have access to other elders and to presbytery. We can talk about that. But we're talking about obeying the elders that because they have the spiritual oversight over souls. And all too frequently, now why is it important that there are ecclesiastical duties? As we'll go through between 7 and 17, because when trials hit, we don't want to listen to anybody but ourselves. We get trapped into that loop. I've heard it said that everybody wants to be a Presbyterian until it's time to do Presbyterian things. Then they want to be congregational. Then they want to have votes to, to press their own agenda. When in reality, God has raised up elders from among them, has called ministers to be the spiritual overseers and to guide and direct individual congregations and work within presbytery boundaries and things of that nature. But when times are tough, when persecution comes, it's all so easy to go, every man for themselves, we're out of here. And that's not the way it is. Because sometimes when times get tough, the people that have the rule over you are going to have to say the hard thing. Say, hey, yeah, it's tough. It's tough for me too. But I see you've claimed the name of Christ, but you're not living consistently. What's going on? Let me in. Let me pray for you. Let me visit. Let me come to see you. And that's hard. Because sometimes when the, when the persecution hits, we don't want to apply biblical scripture or bi- biblical principles consistently. We'll pick and choose some things. Maybe we'll pluck some verses out of the context. But to obey them that have the rule, to remember them who were proclaiming Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, means sometimes you might have to hear the hard thing. And that's a challenge for all of us, to hear that you're not living consistently. And Because what, what's, what's our first reaction? Well, you, and then you point out all these other things, forgetting that we're called to let brotherly love continue. We're forgetting that we're called to obey them that have the rule over you. Now, some will say, well, it's easy, preacher, to stand in a pulpit and tell people to listen to you. And that's not what I'm saying. Paul is reminding the Hebrews that just as in the same way that they have personal duty to the Lord, they have ecclesiastical duty to his people that he's raised up to, to govern. That they're a part of something other than just a me to the Father through the Holy Ghost pipeline. That individuals are saved personally, but they are saved into the body of Christ. And that body has to function together, and that body has overseers. So personal duty, ecclesiastical duty. And you see that and how it plays out between verses 7 and 17. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it's a good thing that the heart be established with grace if we're remembering the ones who have the rule over us, who proclaimed Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can start discerning what the diverse and strange doctrines might actually be. If we are available of the the grace that God has given, not with foods that have profited them that have been occupied therein. And, And Paul talks about the altar that we have in verse 10. 
It's Christ. We have Christ and his sacrifice for us. The bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest. This is Paul talking about how the Old Testament sacrifice took place and then it was the, uh, the sacrifice was taken outside the camp. Verse 11, the blood was brought into the sanctuary by the high priest and the, the bodies of those beasts were burned without the camp. Christ also sacrificed for us outside the gate. He's the more sufficient sacrifice than those animals. This is doctrinal. This is ecclesiastical. The church is proclaiming this. God's people, God's elders are proclaiming this in the midst of persecution when that temptation to go off the range, to go off script, to go into business for yourself and decide for yourself how you want to apply the scriptures, if you want to apply the scriptures, and when you want to apply the scriptures. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Now, you've got, you've got to obey those people that have the rule over you. They're the ones proclaiming that Christ was the sufficient and the perfect sacrifice. Those Old Testament temptations that you may have, those works-based things, Christ actually did those things perfectly for you. You don't have to go back to them. Because isn't that the way it often goes? It's the way it was in Scripture. The Israelites saw the ten plagues, saw the Red Sea parted. And what did they do when it got a little hard? Want to go back to Egypt? At least we had food. Wanted to go back to slavery. So no doubt our author is seeing what's happening, to go back to those old ways. But no, when you remember and obey those who have the rule over you, you remember and obey the teaching that they gave you. These, these people that the Hebrews are told to remember brought the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice outside the gate, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose blood is far superior to the blood of bulls and goats, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed, for those people who would repent and believe. You remember the people who said that. You're remembering the message. Your ecclesiastical duty is to remain faithful. And you do it not through your own strength. You do it because the Holy Ghost wills in you the desire and the ability to do that. Look at verse 13 with me. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Let's suffer with Christ in the same way that Moses suffered with God's people, who Christ is far greater than Moses. But Moses chose to suffer with God's people as a type pointing us to Christ who would suffer for God's people. And we follow that example when we're faithful to the teaching of the church that points to Christ as the greater Moses. Verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. And that's the Christian life in trials. 
to continually offer praise to God, to be so connected to God through a study of his word, through a personal duty, through ecclesiastical duty and faithfulness to the teaching, to the sound orthodox teaching, lowercase o, of the church and the elders that God ordained, to avail yourselves of the means of grace offered by corporate public worship, is to be able to offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Continually, that means when things are going well, means when things are not going so well. And it's more important when things aren't going so well. Because like the old saying says, crisis doesn't build character, it reveals it. Same thing with trials for the life of the Christian. It's easy to be faithful when things are going well. When the bills are getting paid and the cars are going, you know, operating appropriately and, you know, you're getting along with your family and you're doing your family worship and you're Quiet times, your private worship with the Lord's going well. Take one of those things away. Puts, replace it with some conflict, with some chaos. And then we see. We see. And if we fall short of that standard, what do we do? Do we just throw up our hand and say, oh, well, I guess I'm, I'm lost? No. If we see that we're struggling, Scripture tells us we have an advocate with the Father. If we realize that we aren't praising God continually, if we're a little bit doubtful, for a little bit burnt out, beat down. Maybe we lash out at, at people. Maybe we lash out at the Lord. It's sin. But if we confess our sin, God's word tells us he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. Christ died for the sins with which we're struggling now. When we learn that, when we obey, when we lean in, when we continue to attend and avail ourselves of the means of grace offered in corporate public worship. When we submit ourselves to those who have the rule over us, we're in a position to do that self-examination. Yeah, you know what? Nobody would know it, but man, I'm listening to this sermon. And it's cutting me to the quick. Lord, I need to do some. I need to do some conversating with you. We've got to talk. I've got some problems. That's great, because they're the struggles that God ordained so that we would have the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. And Paul closes the book in the last seven verses with these theological duties, for, for lack of a better word. He goes through a litany of things. He says, pray for us, again, linking himself to them. Pray for us. We're all together. It's him. It's his traveling companions. Pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. So he's saying we're, we're walking in holiness. We haven't had any issues, but still pray for us. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Again, longing to be with his brothers and sisters, modeling the kinds of things theologically and practically that he's just been saying. First thing he says is let brotherly love continue. What does he say towards the end? I pray for us. I need your prayers. I care that you're praying for me. I want to be with you. Making this, this connection. Walking the walk, if you will. That's what we could say. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. These are theological things. He's closing the book in the typical Paul eh, often does. 
and where he's driving us to the theological. He says the God of peace, he rose Christ from the dead. Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. It's his blood that unites people in, in that new covenant. The God of peace can make us perfect in every good work. He can work in us what's well-pleasing in his sight. That's why we don't do any of these things mentioned in Hebrews 13 in our own strength. And he brings glory and honor to God the Father and Jesus Christ. But suffer the word of exhortation. What does this mean in verse 22? He's pleading with the brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I've written a letter unto you in few words. We'll close with, with that. It's few relatively few words in the book of Hebrews. 13 chapters. It's a lot of verses. It's, it's relatively longish. But it's an exhortation in relatively few words. But he's pointing in those few words exactly where believers ought to be looking. And there's more words that could be said about the direction in which he's pointing. He's pointing believers back to Christ. He's pointing believers back to the one who is sufficient. The son, he, Jesus himself said, when the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And our original audience didn't feel so free. They felt trapped. They're struggling and they're suffering and they don't know the way out. The way out through the narrow gate of Christ. The theological duty we have is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because he's the author of our faith. He's the one that came. He's the one that lived and died for us and for our salvation. But he's also the finisher of our faith because God has promised to never leave or forsake us. Christ came. The Holy Ghost comes and converts us, convicts us of sin, converts us to sons and daughters, and comforts us when we're struggling. Theologically speaking, it really is all about Jesus. He's far more sufficient than the blood of bulls and goats. He is the one that all of those things that the Hebrew Christians would have been exposed to pointed to, and he's the only one that we ought to fix our eyes on as difficulties come in our lives. And through fixing our eyes on Jesus, he equips us by the power of his Holy Ghost with the ability to do these duties. The duty requires a man, namely to believe in the one that he sent. To believe in Christ. And then Christ himself would say, if you love me, you keep my commandments. But I'm going to send you my Holy Ghost so that you can do it. So as persecution come to all of us the bottom line is we need to fix our eyes on Jesus so let's go to him in prayer Father we are thankful for Christ we would be wandering in the wilderness without him sometimes we find ourselves back there so please forgive us for those things those times please forgive us when we struggle in the midst of difficulties. But remind us, Lord, that your word has told us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And help us remember, as the Hebrews 
needed to remember that we need to lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and look unto Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.